Chapter 17 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Souvestre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Souvestre. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 17 At the St. Anthony's Pig. Pay for a drink and I'll listen to you, said Hogshead Geoffrey to his sister. After numerous visits to the many bars and drinking saloons that surrounded the markets, they had finally gone for a late supper into the St. Anthony's Pig, the most popular tavern in the neighborhood, Geoffrey having reconciled himself to waiting for the result of the examination, which would not be announced until the following day. A new and original attraction had been stationed outside the St. Anthony's Pig for the last few days. After the formal inquiries succeeding his discovery of the drowned body in the river, Bouzia had come to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower. He had met with but a week's delay in his itinerary, having been locked up for that time in Orleans for some trifling misdemeanor. On entering the capital, Bouzia's extraordinarily equipage had caused quite a sensation, and as the worthy fellow, with utter disregard of the heavy traffic in the city, had careered about in it through the most crowded streets, he had very soon been run in and taken to the nearest lockup. His train had been confiscated for forty-eight hours, but as there was nothing really to be objected against the tramp, he had merely been requested to make himself scarce and not to do it again. Bazia did not quite know what to make of it all, but while he was towing his two carriages behind his tricycle towards the Champ de Mar, from which point he would at last be able to contemplate the Eiffel Tower, he had fallen in with the editor of the Auto, to whom, in exchange for a bottle of wine at the next café, he had ingeniously confided his story. A sensational article about the globe-trotting tramp appeared in the next number of that famous sporting journal, and Bouzia woke to find himself famous. The next thing that happened was that François Bourbon, the proprietor of the St. Anthony's Pig, shrewdly foreseeing that this original character, with his remarkable equipage, would furnish a singular attraction, engaged him to station himself outside the establishment from eleven to three every night, in return for his board and lodging, and a salary of five francs a day. It need not be said that Bouzia had closed with the offer, but getting tired of cooling his heels on the doorstep, he had gradually taken to leaving his train on the pavement and himself going down into the basement hall, where he generously returned his five francs every night to the proprietor in exchange for potations to that amount. In the basement of the St. Anthony's Pig, the atmosphere was steadily getting cloudier, and the noise louder. The time was about a quarter to two. The swells, and the young men about town who went to have a bowl of onion soup at the popular café, because that was the latest correct thing to do, had withdrawn. The few pale and shabby dancers had given their show, and in another ten minutes, when the wealthy customers had departed, the supper-room would resume its natural appearance, and everybody would be at home. François Bourbon had just escorted the last toffs up the narrow corkscrew staircase that led from the basement to the ground floor, and now he stood, his stout person entirely filling the only exit, unctuously suggesting that perhaps somebody would like to give an order for a hot wine salad. Berta was sitting in a corner beside her brother, whom the warmth of the room and his numerous potations had rendered drowsy and thinking it an opportune moment to tell him of her scheme, before he became talkative or quarrelsome, she began to explain. 
There's nothing much to do, but I want a strong man like you. Any barrels to roll anywhere? he inquired in a thick voice. Bertha shook her head, her glance meanwhile resting mechanically on a small young man with a budding beard and a pale face, who had just taken a seat opposite her and was timidly ordering a portion of sauerkraut. I want some bars removed from a window. They are iron bars set in stone. But the stone is worn and the bars are very rusty, and anybody with a little strength could wrench them out. And that's all? Geoffrey inquired suspiciously. Yes, that's all. Then I shall be very glad to help you. I suppose it will be worth something, won't it? He broke off short, noticing that a man sitting close by seemed to be listening attentively to the conversation. Berta followed his eyes, and then turned with a smile to her brother. That's all right, don't mind, I know that man. And in proof of the statement, she held out a friendly hand to the individual, who seemed to be spying upon them. Good evening again, Monsieur Julliot. How are you, since I saw you just now? I did not notice you were here. Julliot shook hands with her, and without evincing any further interest in her, went on with the conversation he was having with his own companion, a clean-shaven fellow. Go on, Billy Tom. Tell me what has happened. Well, there has been the devil to pay at the royal palace, owing to that accident, you know. Of course, I was not mixed up in it in any way. I'm only interpreter, and I stick to my own job. But three weeks after the affair, Mueller was suddenly kicked out, owing to the door having been opened for the chap who worked the robbery. Mueller? Mueller, said Julliot, seeming to be searching his memory. Who is Mueller? Why, the watchman on the second floor. Oh, ah, uh, yes, and who turned him out? I think his name is Juve. Oh, ho, Julliot muttered to himself. I thought as much. There was a noise at the entrance of the hall, and down the corkscrew staircase came two people who, judging by the greeting they received, were very popular. Ernestine, a well-known figure, and Mealy Benoit, who was very drunk. Benoit lurched from one table to another, leaning on every head and pair of shoulders that came into his way, and reached an empty seat on a lounge into which he crushed, half-squashing the pale young man with a budding beard. The lad made no protest, seeming to be afraid of his neighbor's bulk, but merely wriggled sideways, and tried to give the newcomer all the room he wanted. Benoit did not seem even to notice the humble little fellow, but Ernestine took pity on him, and assured him that she would look after him. All right, Sonny, she said. Mealy won't squash you, and if he tries any of his games on you, Ernestine will look after you. She took his head between her two hands and kissed his forehead affectionately, ignoring Mealy Benoit's angry protests. He's a dear little chap. I like him, she said to the company at large. What's your name, dearie? The boy blushed to the tips of his ears. Paul, he muttered. But Francois Bourbon, the proprietor, with his usual keen eye to business, arrived just then and set down before Mealy Benoit the famous hot wine salad of which he had spoken before. Behind Bourbon came Bozia, who had left his turnout on the pavement and come down into the supper room to eat and drink his five francs, and more if credit could be got. Benoit caught sight of Hogshead Geoffrey and immediately offered to clink glasses with him. He pushed a glass toward him, inviting him to dip it with the rest into the steaming bowl. But Geoffrey was warming up under the influence of alcohol, 
and broke into a sudden flame of wrath at sight of Mealy Benoit. If Benoit should be given the first place, it would be a most rank injustice, he reflected, for he, Geoffrey, was most certainly the stronger man. And besides, the sturdy hogshead was beginning to wonder whether his rival might not have devised an odious plot against him, and put the famous piece of orange peel upon the track, but for which Geoffrey would have won hands down. So Geoffrey, very drunk, offered Benoit, who was no whit more sober, the gross affront of refusing to clink glasses with him. "'Why, it's you!' exclaimed Bouzia, in ringing tones of such glad surprise that everybody turned round to see whom he was addressing. Julio and Berta looked with the rest. "'Why, it's the green man of just now!' said the asylum nurse to her companion, and he assented moodily enough. "'Yes, it's him, all right.' Bouzia took no notice of the attention he had provoked, and did not seem to notice that the green man appeared to be anything but pleased at having been recognized. "'I've seen you before, I know,' he went on. "'Where have I met you?' The green man did not answer. He affected to be engrossed in a most serious conversation with a friend he had brought with him into the supper-room a shabby individual who carried a guitar. But Bazia was not to be put off, and suddenly he exclaimed, with perfect indifference to what his neighbors might think, I know, you are the tramp who was arrested with me down there in Lote, the day of the murder, you know, the murder of the Marquise de Langrune. Bazia, in his excitement, had caught the green man by the sleeve, but the green man impatiently shook him off, growling angrily, Well, and what about it? For some minutes now, Hogshead Geoffrey and Mealy Benoit had been exchanging threatening glances. Geoffrey had given voice to his suspicions, and kind friends had not failed to report his words to Benoit. Inflamed with drink as they were, the two men were bound to come to blows before too long, and a dull murmur ran through the room, heralding the approaching altercation. Berta, anxious on her brother's behalf, and a little frightened on her own, did all she could to induce Geoffrey to come away but even though she promised to pay for any number of drinks elsewhere, he refused to budge from the bench where he was sitting hunched up in a corner. When at length he had got rid of Bouzia and his exasperating garrulity, the green man resumed his conversation with his friend with the guitar. "'It's rather odd that he hasn't a trace of accent,' the latter remarked. "'Oh, it's nothing for a fellow like Gurn to speak French like a Frenchman,' said the green man in a low tone. Then he stopped nervously. Ernestine was walking about among the company, chatting to one another and getting drinks, and he fancied that she was listening to what he said. But another duologue rose audible in another part of the room. If the gentleman would like to show his strength, there's someone ready to take him on. Hogshead Geoffrey had thrown down his glove. Silence fell upon the room. It was Mealy Benoit's turn to answer. At that precise moment, however, Benoit was draining the salad bowl. He slowly swallowed the last of the red liquid. One can't do two things at once. Laid the bowl down, empty, on the table, and in thundering, dignified tones, demanded another, wiped his lips on the back of his sleeve, and turned his huge head toward the corner where Geoffrey was hunched up, saying, Will the gentleman kindly repeat his last remark? Ernestine moved furtively to Julio's side and affecting to be interested only in the argument going on between Geoffrey and Benoit, said without looking at him, The pale man with a greenish complexion said to the man with the guitar, It's he all right, 
because of the burn in the palm of his hand. Julio choked back an oath, and instinctively clenched his fist, but Ernestine already had moved on, and was huskily chaffing the young man with the budding beard. Julio sat with somber face and angry eyes, only replying in curt monosyllables to the occasional remarks of his next neighbor, Billy Tom. Marie, the waitress, was passing near him, and he signed for her to stop. "'Say, Marie,' he said, nodding toward the window that was behind him. "'What does that window open on to?' The girl thought for a moment. "'On to the cellar,' she said. "'This hall is in the basement.' "'And the cellar,' Julio went on. "'How do you get out of that?' "'You can't,' the servant answered. "'There's no door. You have to come through here.' Momentarily becoming more uneasy, Julio scrutinized the long tunnel of a room at the extreme end of which he was sitting. There was only one means of egress, up the narrow corkscrew staircase leading to the ground floor, and at the very foot of that staircase was the table occupied by the green man and the man with the guitar. A plate aimed by Hogshead Geoffrey at Mealy Benoit crashed against the opposite wall. Everyone jumped to his feet, the women screaming, the men swearing. The two market porters stood confronting one another, Hogshead Geoffrey brandishing a chair, Benoit trying to wrench the marble top from a table to serve as a weapon. The melee became general, plates smashing on the floor and dinner things flying towards the ceiling. Suddenly a shot rang out, but quickly, though it had been fired, the green man and the man with the guitar had seen who fired it. For the last few minutes, indeed, these two mysterious individuals had never taken their eyes off Julio. Julio, whom Bertha had supposed from his appearance to be an honest cattle drover, was undoubtedly a wonderful shot. Having observed that the room was lighted by a single chandelier composed of three electric lamps, and that the current was supplied by only two wires running along the cornice, Julio had taken aim at the wires and cut them clean in two with a single shot. Immediately following upon the shot, the room was plunged into absolute darkness. A perfectly incredible uproar ensued, men and women struggling together and shouting and trampling one another down, and crockery and dinner things crashing down from the sideboards and tables onto the floor. Above the din, a sudden hoarse cry of pain rang out. Help! And simultaneously, Bertha, who was lost among the mob, heard a muttered exclamation in her ear and felt two hands groping all over her body as if trying to identify her. The young nurse was the only woman in the room wearing a hat. Half swooning with terror, she felt herself picked up and thrust upon a bench, and then someone whispered in a venuous voice, You are not to help number 25, the Rambert woman, to escape. Berta was so utterly astonished that she overcame her fright sufficiently to stammer out a question, But, but what? But who? Lower still, but yet more peremptorily, the voice became audible again. Fantomas forbid you to do it, and if you disobey, you die. The nurse dropped back upon the bench, half fainting with fright, and the row in the supper room grew worse. Three men were fighting now, the green man being at grips with two at once. The green man did not seem to feel the blows rained on him, but with a strength that was far beyond the ordinary, he gripped hold of an arm and slid his hands along the sleeve, never letting go of the arm, until he reached the wrist, when, wrenching open the clenched fist, he slipped his fingers into the palm of the hand. A little exclamation of triumph escaped him, 
and simultaneously the owner of the hand uttered an exclamation of pain, for the green man's fingers had touched a still raw wound upon the hollow of the palm. But at that instant his leg was caught between two powerful knees, and the slightest pressure more would have broken it. The green man was forced to let go the hand he held. He fell to the ground with his adversary near him, and for a moment thought that he was lost. But at the same moment his adversary let go of him in return, having been taken by surprise by yet a third combatant who joined in the fray and separated the first two, devoting himself to a furious assault upon the man whom the green man had tried to capture. The green man passed a rapid hand over the individual who had just rescued him from the fierce assault, and was conscious of a shock of surprise as he identified the young man with the budding beard. Thereupon he collared him firmly by the neck and did not let him go. In the crush, the combatants had been forced toward the staircase, and at this narrow entrance into the hall bodies were being trampled underfoot, and piercing screams rent the air. Francois Bonbon had not made the least attempt to interfere. He knew exactly the proper procedure when trouble of this sort broke out, and he had gone to the corner of the street and sent the constable on duty there to the nearest police station for help. Directly the first gendarmes arrived, François Bonbon had led them behind the counter in the shop and showed them the fire hose. With a skill acquired by long practice, they rapidly unrolled the pipe, introduced it into the narrow mouth of the staircase, turned on the tap, and proceeded to drench everybody in the supper room below. The unexpected sousing pulled the combatants up short, separated all the champions, and drove the howling and shrieking mob back to the far end of the room. The operation lasted for a good five minutes, and when the gendarmes considered that the customers of the St. Anthony's Pig were sufficiently quieted down, the sergeant threw the light of a lantern, which the proprietor obligingly had ready for him, over the supper room, and peremptorily ordered the company to come up, one by one. Seeing that resistance would be futile, the company obeyed. As they slowly emerged at the top of the corkscrew staircase, meek and subdued, the gendarmes at the top arrested them, slipped handcuffs on them, and sent them off in couples to the station. When the sergeant assumed that everyone had come out, he went down into the supper room just to make sure that nobody was still hiding there. But the room was not quite empty. One unfortunate man was lying on the floor, bathed in his own blood. It was the man with the guitar, and a knife had been driven through his breast. The couple consisting of the green man and the young man with the budding beard, of whom his companion had never once let go since identifying him during the fight in the supper room, were taken to the station. The clerk, who was taking down the names of the prisoners, with difficulty repressed an exclamation of surprise when the green man produced an identification card and whispered a few words in his ear. "'Release that gentleman at once,' said the clerk, with regard to the other— with regard to the other, the green man broke in, kindly release him too. I want to keep him with me. The clerk bowed in consent, and both men were immediately released from their handcuffs. The young man stared in astonishment at the individual who a minute before had been his companion in bonds, and was about to thank him, but the other grasped him firmly by the wrist, as though to warn him of the impossibility of flight, and led him out of the police station, in the street, they met the sergeant with a gendarme bringing in the unfortunate man with a guitar, who was just breathing, and in whom the officials had recognized a detective inspector. 
without letting go of the youth, the green man bent forward to the sergeant and had a brief but animated conversation with him. Yes, sir, that's all, the sergeant said respectfully. I haven't anyone else. The green man stamped his foot in wrath. Good Lord, Gurn has got away. Toward the Rue Montmartre, the green man rapidly dragged his companion, who was trembling in every limb and utterly at a loss to guess what the figure held in store for him. Suddenly the green man halted, just under the light of a street lamp outside the church of saint Eustache. He stood squarely in front of his prisoner and looked him full in the eyes. "'I am Juve,' he said, the detective, and as the young man stared at him in silent dismay, Juve went on, emphasizing each of the words, and with a sardonic smile flickering over his face. And you, Mademoiselle Jeanne, you are Charles Rambert. End of chapter 17 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com